Are you thankful today? We're told in Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, quote, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And that almost sounds impossible when you're going through difficulties, when you're hurting, when you're disappointed. And yet the command is there. There it stands. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's the will of God for all of his people that we thank him. And if we had a clear understanding and the right perspective, no matter what it was we were facing, some of it very hard, we would realize that even in this, God is at work. And he's at work for good things for his children. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, Romans 8, 28. So when difficulties come, we say, Lord, I don't know. I'm not sure how all this is going to work, but I stand in faith on your word that you deserve to be thanked and you deserve to be praised. And so I will thank you and praise you even in this, that you are doing good things for my eternal good and for your demonstrated glory to this world, both angelic and human. You will demonstrate to the universe, to the watching world, that you are God alone and you are deserving of of praise and glory. How in the world can we obey such a command? In everything give thanks. We bow our heads over our food and we thank God for food to eat. That's right to do. It's good to do that. Uh, dogs don't do it, and, and cows don't do it, and, and pigs don't do it, and so forth. But, but we're made in the image of God, and we realize in, as we partake of his goodness, we should, we should thank him. We should thank him. I had a friend on Facebook this week that said, uh, if you're having trouble being thankful, just break down your whole life into little bitty parts and then thank him for each part, and you'll begin to realize how wonderfully blessed you are. Lord, thank you for my little finger. A little pinky. Thank you for my right and left ear. And he went on and it was almost a humorous post. But he said, just break your life down into little bitty parts and thank God for each one of those parts. And you'll realize you are a blessed individual. And I pray that God would bless you with one more thing and that is a grateful heart. What kind of wretches don't thank God? What kind of rebel must it be to partake continually of God's goodness and be so slow to say thank you. I've shared this many times and we're going to get to Romans 11 in just a minute, but Matthew Henry, uh, the great commentator, the great Puritan, the one whose commentary still stands as probably one of the best enduring commentaries of uh, ever on the Bible. He tells the story of a man that was traveling on the, the desolate road and, and he was overcome with, by thieves. They jumped him and beat him and took what they could off of him. And this man was a Christian man and he was known to be a man that was always cheerful and thankful. And he got to, 
He survived that experience, and somebody asked him, I said, now, brother, I, we know what kind of man you are, but surely you can't find anything good to say about that, can you? And he said, uh, as a matter of fact, I can. I'd like to say, first of all, I thank God that though they took everything of value that I had, they didn't take my life. I was able to live through it. And I thank God that though they took everything I had, it wasn't much. And I thank God that it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. I'm glad that I was not a thief and I didn't molest somebody else and rob them. I'm glad it happened to me instead of me doing it to someone else for they are to be pitied, such a rebel against God's law, a thief, right? How can you do that? How can you be that thankful? Well, here's one way, one reminder. It's nothing new this morning. One reminder. We are a new covenant people. We live on this side of the cross. Jesus has died, and the curtain tore in two, and the way has been opened, and the old covenant has been fulfilled, and the, the shadows and types and ceremonies of Judaism did their work, and they worked right up until the time they were not needed anymore, and now that has been set aside for a new and better covenant. And in this new covenant that we have in Jesus, we are privileged to know the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're not orphans in this world. We have within us, sealed by a glorious one called the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. We are sealed. If we're a Christian, we are indwelt by and sealed by the blessed Holy Spirit. And so when God give, gives commands like, in everything, give thanks, it is a command we can obey by the help of the Spirit. Being a new covenant believer, living in this wonderful day when every believer is indwelt by and sealed by the Holy Spirit, God gives a command, and to the natural man, to the unregenerate man or woman, that would seem foolishness. They would laugh and say, yeah, right. Yeah, right. You really expect me to be thankful that much? But a Christian says, when God commands his people in the new covenant, those of us living on this side of the cross and indwelt by the blessed spirit, when he gives a command, it is doable. And it is sin if we don't do it. And yet, how many times do we mope throughout the day murmuring and having our pity parties? We all do it. And we need to hear those words afresh. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So if you want to look at just how depraved man is, look at how much he murmurs and look at how little he thanks God. There's a clear identifier of what it means to be a sinner before our maker. In fact, Romans chapter 1 says that they knew him to be God, they saw his creation, and they didn't thank him. They didn't express thanks to the one who is worthy of thanks. So, <clears throat> let's talk about thanksgiving. Uh, not the dressing and gravy and the turkey, but, but the literal giving of thanks to God as Christians. 
As new covenant believers, God commands and God enables. Amen? He commands us to do it and He enables us to do it by His Spirit. But here's another. Let me kind of piggyback off that and kind of transition to another similar thought. As a believer, as a Christian, we can be thankful because, now follow me, when you know that you deserve nothing, that you forfeited every right or kind treatment from God because of our sin, when you know that, and then you realize that the gospel teaches us that God gives us freely in Christ every spiritual blessing, both for time and eternity, it makes you thankful. When you know you deserve nothing, and you're given everything in Christ, it will produce a thankful heart. The title of the sermon is Grace Leads to Gratitude. Grace, grace from God, undeserved favor from a good God to an unworthy people. Grace leads us to gratitude. If we understand the message of the gospel of grace, it will cause us to be a thankful, worshiping, Singing, dare I say cheerful, Uh, dare I say optimistic, biblically optimistic person. We're not Pollyannas. We don't have rose-colored glasses and we don't whistle pretending everything's good. We look beyond the temporary and we see the real good down the road. And therefore we sing in the midnight hour. We sing on the sick bed. We sing when there's no reason to sing, humanly speaking. We praise God because we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, Romans 5, 2 and 3 taught us. Now go back to Romans and let's further that thought a little bit. When you know you deserve nothing and you understand as a Christian that you're given everything in Christ, it makes you thankful. I want to read the passage that we sang earlier, a wonderful song written by Andrew Peterson that we just sang there, last song we sang. Romans 11, verse 33 through 36. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, has written 11 chapters about grace, 11 chapters of what God has done us. And this is amazing. I don't know if you have read this or heard this. I think Sinclair Ferguson was the first one I saw that had pointed this out in one of his books. He points out that in Romans 1 through 11, Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, there are 315 verses. And of those 315 verses, there are eight commands. So for 11 chapters, he doesn't really tell us to do anything much. Eight times he says, do something. Eight imperatives. An imperative is a command from God. Do this. Of 315 verses in Romans 1 through 11, there's eight, if he has counted right, commands. The rest of it is not telling us to do anything. It's telling us what God has done, what God has accomplished. What Jesus did and what it means. 
and how it applies. Those are called indicatives, not imperatives, not commands, but facts. Here's what God has done in Christ for Jew and for Gentile. And then you get to chapter 12, and then the, to put it in Sinclair Ferguson's words, and I wish I could use his accent, but I can't. He says, only then does the Holy Spirit open the sluice gates and let loose a flood of imperatives. Only at chapter 12, then he says, now... Here's what you must do in light of that. So 11 chapters about what God has done. And then chapter 12, 13, 14, and first part of 15. Now here's what we must do. But how do you think then chapter 11 ends when he gets to 11 chapters about grace? Here's how Paul overflows in praise to God. Verse 33, chapter 11, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's all about him. It's all about what he has wrought. Who can grasp the depths of his grace? Who can understand the richness of his mercy? From him, he's the source, he's the originator, he's the planner. Through him, he's the means that accomplishes this great plan. And to him, he's the goal of it all, his glory. The originator, the means, and the goal. He planned it, he accomplishes it, and he does it for his glory. We're talking about salvation. This is for his glory. And so when Paul writes about the gospel of grace, he gets to the end and he just overflows with praise. Oh, the depth. How unsearchable, how inscrutable, how far beyond comprehension is this gospel of Jesus. Now, question. If you can't say, oh, in amazement, if there's no awe about the gospel, perhaps you need a refresher. Or maybe you need to repent. If there's no awe, here's an apostle. He's got the gospel. He understands the implications. And when he begins to conclude this section before he moves into the next session, section of commands for the Christian, his heart just spills out in overflowing praise and an apostle who has the Holy Spirit leading him what to write, writes, oh, the depth. It's almost like he can't find the words to write. There is a, a childlike wonder at what God has wrought in Christ, even by an apostle. And he says it's unsearchable. It's, the depths are too deep to plumb the depths. The height is too high. It is too broad. It is too glorious. All we can say is 
To God be the glory forever. Now that's what I'm trying to say in this little summary sentence. The title is Grace Leads to Gratitude. Or to tease that out a little bit fuller, when you understand that you deserve nothing, and that's what Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 teaches us. Romans 1, 2, and 3 says we are disqualified. We are sinners. Moral and immoral, religious and unreligious, irreligious, Jew or Gentile. Chapters 1 through 3 says we are condemned. And our mouths must be shut before God. We have nothing to argue, nothing to defend, no merit to plead, nothing to impress God with. Our mouths are stopped when God takes his holy law and puts puts it beside us and we see what violators of the law of God we are. I thought this week again uh, about the numbers. I'm going to just kind of make it round numbers for us to try to grasp this. If you live 70 years in this world and I think the life expectancy is now, what, 75 or something? But let's just keep it at 70 for round numbers. If you live 70 years and you multiply 70 times 365 days per year, you get 25,550, I think. So you live 70 years, that means you live 25,550 days. Let's just say... To be very kind and perhaps very naive. Let's say you sin one time a day. Just one time a day. And that is very naive to think we only sin one time a day. But let's say just one time a day you fail to do something that God commanded us to do. Or you did something that God said don't do. Sins of commission or sins of omission. And you only sin one time a day. Can you imagine having a, a rap sheet that you've got to take to court and stand before the judge, and the judge looks at it page after page after page, and there are 25,550 violations of the law? And yet, what do most people say when they are asked about spiritual matters? Their, their basic building block, most people that don't know the Scriptures and haven't known the power of the Holy Spirit upon their heart, most people will say this, I'm a good person. That's their starting point. Their basic building block of theology is, I'm a pretty good person. Let's try to be a little more honest. Let's double that one sin a day to two. And now we're up to 50,000 plus violations of the law of God. But the fact of the matter is, beloved, we've not been guilty of two sins a day. We've not. It goes much, much, much higher than that, don't it? For instance, there are some sins like the sin of pride. Pride, like the rotting carcass, spreads and affects everything. And the stench of pride is the mother of a thousand other sins. Here's a proud man. He's guilty of the sin of pride, but now everything he says is a proud word. And every interaction with someone else is from a position of superiority. I'm better than you. And that pride 
flavors and influences everything he does so that one sin of pride makes a thousand more sins of manifestations of pride. So we're not guilty of one sin a day or two. We are what the Bible says in Romans chapter 3. We are not righteous. No, not even one of us. And so we feel that, don't we? We've been made to know that. My statement again, when you know you deserve nothing, now let's pause at that comma. Do you know you deserve nothing? And if you do know that, you only know it because the Holy Spirit has showed you that. You only know it because the Word of God has stripped us bare. We stand like a a proud peacock, impressed with our colors. We have self-righteousness. We have morality. We're good. We try to be good neighbors and good, good citizens, and we try to be better better people than those evil people over, the, over here. And the Holy Spirit takes the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and cuts us right to the heart and says, you may be impressing your neighbors, but God sees the secret thoughts. God sees the thoughts of your heart. And our mouth is stopped. And we cannot boast. Martin Lloyd-Jones says a Christian is one whose mouth has been stopped and then opened. God stops our mouth. He stops our boasting. He stops our claims. He stops our arguments that we argue for ourselves. He puts the law of God as the standard beside us and we see what a violator of the holy law of God we are. Now, that's the bad news of the gospel. The bad news is we are lost beyond remedy. There's no help. We can't fix ourselves. We can't save ourselves. That's the bad news. We're not doing some kind of self-improvement plan here. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not fixing up our messed up lives. The gospel is God by his grace and by faith in Jesus, God gives us a brand new life. A brand new heart, a brand new start, a brand new beginning. Old things are passed away. All things become new. So when you know you deserve nothing, and you only know that because the Holy Spirit has taken the Word of God and showed you that. But let's clarify another word. When you know you deserve nothing, do we deserve nothing? Is that statement accurate, truly and totally? To put a finer point on it, we do deserve something. We do deserve something. We have been guilty of innumerable sins against God. We deserve something, all right. It's called justice. Is God the just God, a just judge? Can you imagine going to court with all these crimes against you and thinking, the judge, he's a good judge. He's going to let me off. No, because he's a good judge, he will uphold the law. He will say, 
It grieves me to look at such a list of violations against the law. Your punishment will be great. It's one thing to happen in a human courtroom. What will it be like to stand in the divine courtroom? And if you're not saved and you're hearing this, your heart ought to be shuddering with fear and trembling to think that you're still alive only by His mercy. Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. It says the people begged him to stop preaching. They grasped onto whatever handhold they could find in the around them because they felt as if they would drop into hell as he preached, as he preached about the holiness of God against willful, wretched sinners. They trembled. But we don't just preach the wrath of God. We preach the grace of God. But you do not know the preciousness of grace until you know the exceeding sinfulness of sin. So you... Know that is by the Holy Spirit you've been brought to see that you deserve nothing but justice. So here's what makes grace so beautiful. We say grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. But we need to add to that a little bit more. We need to say grace is God's unmerited favor in the face of his deserved justice. It's not just he gives us favor in a, in a vacuum. He gives us favor when we deserve to taste his justice. Do you see the beautiful diamond of the gospel shining in that black velvet background? Grace is amazing when you realize what we really do deserve. In the face of deserved and merited justice, God gives us undeserved and unmerited favor and that is so sweet to me and I know it is to you who believe the gospel and so how is it that we will stand one day without fear how is it we live today without fear perfect love casts out fear we understand the truth of justification that God declares us With this rap sheet that's a mile long of the violations of God's holy law. God doesn't wink at that. God doesn't say, oh, well, it's not really that bad. It is just as bad as it can be. And yet God sees the beauty of Jesus Christ, his true righteousness, put in the account of all who believe on Christ. And we are justified by faith. And we have peace with God. And we stand in grace. And we look forward to glory. And we even rejoice in trouble because God is using trouble to sanctify us. So really the only person that can really be thankful as we ought to be is the, is the one that's, that's in Christ. And has understood we deserve, and we know this, we know that we deserve nothing but justice Here's God, just scan the, the mountain peaks of Scripture. God makes a man and woman. He gives them a garden paradise. He says, it's all yours, and I'm going to walk with you in it. And there's going to be one test. There's a tree you're not to eat of. And here comes Satan, and he 
makes his smooth talk, and he gives his deceptive question. Did God really say you can't eat of any of these trees? And Adam and Eve follow Satan's counsel. They follow bad advice. And they begin to fixate on this tree, and they begin to see how beautiful the tree is, and surely there's no harm in such beauty. And it's abundant. It's loaded with fruit. Surely it won't hurt to have one bite. But you see, it was more than a bite. It was a, an, a rebellion. It was a coup. It was treason to a good, kind God who gave them a, their existence, and he gave them a home, and he gave them everything they could need for eternal joy, and they had him, and they cast their vote for Satan. They had their hearts deceived with a promise of more. Instead of being grateful and content, God casts them out of the garden. Having clothed their nakedness, he drives them away from the tree of life. A few chapters later in Genesis, the earth is full of what? Wickedness. Full of violence. And God gives grace to a man named Noah, gives him a plan. Noah builds an ark. He takes his family into the ark, and God destroys the world in a flood. That was justice. You say, well, that was harsh. It was just. You've got a world of rebels, a world of violent men and unclean and perverse and wretched and immoral human race, and God destroys them in the flood, and yet he spares Noah and his sons. And from Noah and his three sons comes the multitudes that will populate the earth after the flood. You see the goodness of God. You see the law of God being given. You see violations of God's law, and you see the justice of God enacted every time. And you see that all through the Old Testament. The prophets preach to the nation and they say, repent, circumcise your hearts. Don't be content with just the outward rituals. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Don't just go through the motions of worship. Come with a broken heart, a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. And yet they brought their lambs and they brought their offerings and they brought their Went through the motions and the prophet said, you're a stiff-necked people. Come back to your maker. And all through the Old Testament, we've got the prophets calling the people back, calling them back. And God tells his prophets, they're not going to listen to you because they don't listen to me. Let me show you what they're like. Hosea, go marry a prostitute. That's how my people are. They're harlots. They have forsaken me their rightful husband, and they are seeking pleasures in everyone else but me. And that was the tragic story of Hosea and Gomer. And you've got the prophets acting out the treachery of Israel. Israel, the best nation in the world, and yet they were treasonous to God. And there's the pattern all the way through the Old Covenant. You get to the New Testament, and you've got a baby born. 
The cry of a baby breaks the silence between the Old and New Testament. And what will they do with this baby? They will treasure this baby, no doubt, because this is the Messiah born just as promised. But he's not treasured by the world. He's hated. He's despised. And he told us we would be too in this world. So we must be ready for that. If the world loves us, we're probably, we may not be as loyal to Christ as we ought to be. I didn't say go out and try to be rude. Don't go out and be, be needlessly offensive. Love as fervently and as powerfully by the Spirit as you can and speak the truth in love. But you will not find a red carpet welcome if you live for Jesus in this world. Just expect to be uh, mistreated, canceled. Be can- you'll be canceled. Most likely it's coming to all of us. You will be seen as nothing. You're worthless. Your opinions don't count. Oh, you're one of those. Or you, you believe that book? Um, don't you realize we've grown beyond all that now in our time? Don't you realize that? You're still a believer in the Bible. Oh, that's, you're, you should be silenced. You're harsh. You're judgmental. You're a bigot. Beloved, are we ready for what's coming? May God help us. So undeserving of blessings, we have been given every blessing in Christ. Forgiveness, peace with God, a heavenly home, healed bodies one day, reunion with our loved ones who have gone ahead of us that were in Christ, a free Conscience free from guilt. When conscience nags at us, we take it to the cross. And we say, oh yeah, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. And our conscience is silenced again from its nagging accusations. And sometimes those accusations will not be our conscience. It'll be our adversary. And we rehearse the gospel again. We rejoice in the truth of justification by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. And we live to be a thankful believer in this world. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. This is why the apostle concludes with those words at the end of Romans 11. What a gospel is the gospel of Christ. What a gospel is the gospel of grace. What a glorious truth is the truth of justification by faith alone. And when you get that, You and I will not help but be thankful. Amen. Let's stand. Do you know Christ this day in the free 
offer of grace to sinners. Have you bowed at the foot of the cross, as it were, in faith? You heard of Jesus crucified, taken down from the cross and buried, triumphantly coming out of the tomb as Lord on the third day, going back to the Father's right side, sending the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin and of God's righteousness and of God's judgment against sin, and yet seeing the blessed truth of substitution. Jesus stood in your place. Jesus bore the wrath of your sins. He bore the punishment that you deserve. And you by faith in Christ and with a repentant broken heart before him. Oh, how could you have sinned against such a good God? How could I? And yet that's the truth of our lives. Every day, day in and day out, year after year, Apart from Christ, we are doomed. Doomed. All other ground is sinking sand. Can you say on Christ the solid rock I stand? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. What great words. I pray they're your testimony today. Morality will keep you on the good side of the law, but it'll take you to hell just as fast as immorality will. Because it'll make you glory in yourself and think you're good and, and you will measure yourself against Hitler or someone that's really evil and you'll say, I'm a pretty good person. But the gospel lays us bare and it makes us fall before a holy and good God and it points us away from ourselves to a beautiful right, glorious, holy Savior lifted up in our place. And we look at him and we live. Look and live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of grace. The gospel that puts before us in, in clear high-definition, laser-like clarity of our sin against you and your justice against sin and the beauty of a substitute provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see his awful agony under your wrath, bearing the shame and the guilt of sinners and we see, hear his awful cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see the earth shake and the sun grow dark. And we see something of the terror of a holy God against sin. And yet the earth stops shaking and the sun comes out again and the curtain is torn. And the dove descends. And the promises go out, whosoever will may come, and all who comes will not be cast away. What a gospel. What a gospel that saves to the uttermost all who come to God by Christ. May this be our joy today, this week, and for the rest of our lives, right into eternity. 
we understand that we do deserve something. It is, it is justice. And we have been given that which we do not deserve, grace in Christ. And we are blown away and we are thankful. And Lord, help us not to forget it on a day-to-day basis now. May we learn to be good preachers and preach the gospel to ourselves every day and preach it to others as well. And we will know, O Lord, that you will draw, as only you can by the power of your spirit, you will draw men and women to yourself. You will cause them to see through a blind eye that hasn't worked previously. You will cause their eye to see. And for the first time, light will begin to shine And they will see and understand the wretchedness of sin and the beauty of Christ. Oh, Lord, do it today. Do it today, oh, Lord, we pray. We thank you. We bless your holy name. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all our iniquities and who heals all our diseases. We thank you for the healing of salvation and the renewing of our relationship with you. We bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen.